was a good song. Get you kind of awake on a New Year's Day morning. So Happy New Year. Good to, good to see everybody here. We gave away extra credit for uh, the Christmas Eve services cause, since it was so cold. And just so you guys know, we're giving away extra credit for today's service as well. Just the 9 o'clock service, so you guys have more extra credit coming your way in heaven. So <clears throat> worked it out with God. He's got this all figured out, so that's good. Well, there's two things that never change. <clears throat> you know what they are? Cha- oh, my word. Who said that? Have you read my notes? Whoa. <clears throat> that is so weird. I thought somebody was on my computer. Change never changes. There's always change happening, right? In our bodies, in our world. <clears throat> and God never changes. And we're glad that God never changes because of the changes that are always changing in our lives. Well, we have some change happening in our church. And um, it's, <clears throat> it seems maybe like, <sighs> but it's actually good. So that's good. Um, so Ellie Havis has uh, let us know that she's stepping down from Children's Ministry Coordinator. Uh, they are having their third child. <clears throat> probably a wise thing for her to do. Uh, she's due here at the beginning of February, probably come earlier <clears throat> if you've seen her. Um, and uh, so she's decided to, to step down from that, and uh, Jason and Wyatt, for the time being, are going to kind of make sure that's all running smoothly. So if you're in children's ministry, help them in that way. Um, <clears throat> she's been doing it for almost six years. She started when, when we first came in, jumped in on that uh, ministry, and been doing it for about six years. She's doing a great job with that. Um, so be praying for us <clears throat> as um, we ask God to provide somebody who has a passion for children's ministry, but also is organized and has kind of a dream for where we can go with our children's ministry and reaching out to the community, impacting our community through our church, uh, through our children's ministry. <clears throat> the other one is that Logan, you got, all know he was uh, been in a year-long residency with us, music residency, and uh, he's, as he and Courtney have been praying through things and talking through things, has decided to step down from the, the music ministry. Uh, he would be moving into a full staff position, and so they had to decide, well, is this really what God wants me to be doing full-time? Uh, and that's what the residency is for. And so he's decided to go ahead and, and step down at this time. Uh, but, as with the Havises, they're not going anywhere. Um, and so the Wolves are not going anywhere. In fact, Logan plans to still be in the music ministry. Uh, he's also going to be leading our music until we find somebody. So be praying with us that God would provide us with a guy who uh, can help us with our music ministry. And uh, we've been in the search for that for about a month already. And uh, <clears throat> if you're sitting here going... I didn't know any of this. That's probably because you're not checking your email, or we don't have your email. It's the fastest way we can get a hold of people. So if we don't have your email, you want to know exciting news like this, put your name on a a card and put your email down. We'll make sure you get on our list, and we can send that to you. All right. So what was it about Jesus that caused you to come to a place where you decided to place your faith in him, those of you who have, have done that. What was it about him that you said, you know, I need to ask him to forgive me of my sins and I want him to restore my relationship with God? What, <clears throat> what was it? If you're here this morning and you haven't done that yet, what is it that's keeping you from that? What could Jesus do <clears throat> or what could you learn about Jesus that would cause you 
to cross that line of faith, to put your faith in Christ, to ask him to forgive you of your sins and ask him to restore that relationship with him. I want you to be thinking about that, not just this morning, but as we go through this series, going through the Gospel of John. The Apostle John says in John 20, says, therefore many other signs are these proofs of his deity. Jesus, which by the way, <clears throat> I didn't talk about this earlier, but when you see the word deity, you have to go deity. Yeah, it's got, you got to have that English, right? So, proofs of his deity. Try it. Deity. Yeah, yeah, good. Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. So there's a bunch. But these, these particular signs and proofs, some would say about 35 are in the Gospel of John, have been written so that you may believe or put your full weight of trust on that Jesus is Christ, the Savior King, the Son of God, that he is God, and that believing you may have life, or the spiritual, eternal life in his name. In fact, um, so, so John says there's, there's a lot that Jesus has done. There's a bunch of signs and a bunch of proofs that he is God, that he's the Savior, that he is Lord. And John 21, 25, he says that the world couldn't even contain the books. I think we got, yeah, the world couldn't even contain the number of books that could be written of all the things that Jesus did while he was here on earth. We only have, from John's gospel, like I said about, somebody said about 35 signs or proofs that Jesus is God. These are the ones that, that the Holy Spirit reminded John of and said, hey, I want you to make sure you write this down in your gospel. And so this morning we want to look at uh, a couple of those first ones, uh, actually the first one, and then not in a, a miracle, but an event, out of John chapter 2. So go ahead and, and turn there. It's page 1059 if you're using the Bible there in, in the seats that we're providing for you. If you do, let me just give you a real quick review. During the Christmas services, we kicked off this series, basically. Um, and we were talking about the fact that John was saying that Jesus is the Word, the Word of God, that the Word is God, that the Word is the one who created this world, that He's the one who gives physical life and spiritual life, that that, that person, that Word, is Jesus, because He was the one who became flesh, became man. And it is only through Jesus that we have the ability to become children of God, or that we can be saved and have eternal life. And then Pastor Tim, on Christmas Day, he finished up chapter 1, and we had, I think about 25 of our people went down to Fremont on Christmas Day. It was really a, kind of a, really a fun time with all three campuses hanging out there and having a worship service together. And so uh, what Pastor Tim was doing is basically saying that, hey, John the Baptist and these disciples that came along and followed after Jesus, they believed that Jesus was God as well. In fact, John the Baptist, he was going around just yelling out, literally yelling out that, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That, that's what he was saying to these Jewish people and, and non-Jewish people as he went around getting things ready for when Jesus Christ would eventually show up, which he did in John chapter 1. Andrew called him the Messiah, or this, this King Savior. And Nathaniel called him Jesus, called Jesus the Son of God and Messiah. So as soon as Jesus began his public ministry, people were identifying him saying, this is God. This is the one that the Old Testament was telling us about, one that God would come to earth, Emmanuel, God with us. 
and that this is, in fact, the one who it is. Well, John 2 tells us that three days after he had this conversation with Nathaniel, and six days after John the Baptist was being interrogated by some investigators that came up from Jerusalem on behalf of the religious leaders, that they end up, Jesus ends up at a wedding, and so we want to work through. So we're going to work through John chapter 2, and I'm just going to read some, and I'm going to talk about some, and I'm going to read some, and just work our way through it. So it says this, John 2, verse 1, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus, Mary, was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. All right, so I just thought it might be good for us to understand what's happening. So this is in the, obviously in the area of Israel. The map on the left side here, we have Jerusalem down, down south, and we have Bethany up in the north. So this, John chapter 1, is where this was all happening, was happening in Bethany. Um, Jesus and John, and Jesus had just been baptized and all kinds of stuff. That's all happening in Bethany. So after that, three days later, they, they take off from Bethany and they travel up over to Cana. They're up in, the, in northern Israel. That's where Jesus was primarily at at the beginning of his public ministry. And so things were happening up there in the north. Right, so they're at Cana. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. All right, so, so th- this is an important conversation that Jesus has with Mary. I, I was studying this out this week and got into a little more detail than I have in the past even, and this is pretty interesting. So first of all, Mary runs up to him and says, Hey, the, the wine ran out. Now people are debating as to whether was she actually a... Um, a guest, or was she actually serving there? No one really knows. And you know, of course, my my cynical mind is she was over at the wine place going go go go. <laughs> I'm sorry, that probably wasn't a good thing. Anyways, but she realized, hey, the, the wine runs out, so she comes and tells Jesus. Now, why did she do that? We're not really told why. She might have thought, well, Jesus, there's him and you know, possibly twelve of his disciples there, so maybe they could run out real quick and they could go get some wine. Or she does believe that he's God or has powers from God where he could uh, miraculously make some wine. Whatever the case, she tells Jesus. But then Jesus responds to her in what almost seems like a, a rude way. He doesn't say, well, Mom, uh, or hey, your love of my life, Mother. Um, he says, woman. Now, this isn't a disrespectful response. This is just him using the term that he was used often when he speaks to women. It's a generic, general term for woman. Uh, gunai, gunai, however you want to pronounce it. But it's a general term for female. And then he, he asks the question, what does that have to do with us? So this is where it, kind of, this is where it gets pretty cool, I think, as you kind of study things out. This is a Jewish figure of speech. And it, and it means... Um, Literally translated, it means what to me and to you. Or in other words, what does your wine issue have to do with me? This is a phrase that in the Jewish language, if they wanted to bring distance between people, if they want to say, well, you're over there and I'm over here, they would use this phrase. And so what Jesus is doing at this point, first he calls her woman. He doesn't call her mother anymore. He's making a distinction as to who she is to him. He's, she's no longer 
his mother in a sense that he's going to be responsible for her. He, she's just a woman. And so he's shifting his focus and he's letting people know, I'm shifting my focus from earthly concerns, like this wine issue, to heavenly concerns, to what God wants him to do. In fact, Jesus will talk about this over and over and over again in the Gospel of John, that I'm here to do my Father's business. That whatever the Father tells me to do, that's what I'm going to do. I don't do anything unless the Father tells me to do it. And so he's making this right here, right at the beginning, to his mother. Hey, things are changing. This used to be a mother-son relationship, but now it's a servant-God relationship. I'm no longer going to be concerned about the things of the earth. I'm being concerned about the things of God, the things of, of heaven. He would provide the wine. Mary expected him to, or not because Mary told him to, but because that was God wanting him to do that. Of course, he's God, but he's in this father-son relationship, so he's giving us an example of how we're to follow after God, because God wants him to. Which is interesting, and I'm never one to, I don't want to necessarily bash other religions, but it's interesting to me, the Catholic Church, for instance, would say they tell their, their members to, to pray to Mary. Because if Mary will tell Jesus what to do. Well, evidently, no, that stopped right at the beginning of his ministry. He's like, I'm, I'm going to do, do this wine thing because I've got some other reasons for it. Not because you're telling me to do it, because this relationship has changed. You are now a servant. I'm God. And so I'm going to do that. And then he also says, that my hour has not yet come. Now this phrase, this hour that he talks about, which he talks about frequently in John, is always pointing towards the day that he will hang on the cross and suffer for our sins. And so he says, hey listen, I'll, I'm going I'm to make this wine for you. I'm going to show my power that I'm God, but it's not, gonna, it's not yet my time to, to suffer. And so this will happen, but I'm going to do this for other reasons. So let's continue reading. So his mother said to the servants, which whatever he says to you, do it. So it's kind of funny. I don't know if this is I don't know if this is how it plays out, but in my head it does. So he says this to her, and she's like, Anyways, whatever he tells you to do, just do it. You know, it's almost like, you know, typical mom, what are you what are you telling me? What you know? Anyways, I don't know if that's the case, but I'll just say it is just for the humor of it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them to the brim, and he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. Thanks, John. Uh, The head waiter called the bridegroom, And he said to him, every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs was a proof that Jesus is God. Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested. So why did he do this? Manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And so Jesus changes the water to wine, and he did it, for the reason of manifesting his glory, which is a big way of saying that he was showing himself to be God. That he had the power to change the molecular structure of water into what wine is. 
we're not going to get into a whole discussion about wine and whether we're, you know, all that kind of things. You could just go down a rabbit trail at this point uh, about drinking and alcohol and Christians and whether we should, whether we should. The point of the matter is he created wine from water and they were able to enjoy that and celebrate in the wedding. And then it says his disciples believed in him. That's kind of an interesting thing for John to say because he's already said that. In John 1, we we find out that John the Baptist believed that Jesus was God and Savior. Uh, Andrew believed that he was the Messiah, therefore he was God, the Savior, King. That Nathaniel knew that he was God, the Son of God, and, and Messiah. And so what is John saying here? Because, and it's interesting, because the rest of through John, he's going to be saying this from time to time. So what's John saying here? What he's saying here is with the, the disciples, the longer they were with Jesus, the longer uh, they hung out with him, they heard him teach, and they, so they watched him, how he operated with people, and the miracles that he performed, the signs that he showed, the more they became convinced that they're, their belief was in the right person, that this was indeed God. And just an interesting thought, we'll come back to it later. But for us, who have placed our faith in Christ, if we would just spend time with Jesus, which today we do that, because we have God Holy Spirit in our lives, but also we, we spend time in His Word. And if we would just, just walk with Jesus... And do life the way he says to do it. And watch him work in our lives. That that, if you're wondering, how do I grow in my faith? How do I grow in my belief of who Jesus is? How do I become more confident of who he is? The disciples are showing us that. We walk with Jesus. We spend time in his word and we do life the way he says to do it. And in that we find out who he is and how he operates. Well, and John tells us that Jesus... Mary, his brothers and disciples, they all take off and go up to Capernaum for a few days. Which, thank you for doing that. But here's a map again for you. Uh, Go back, thanks. Yeah, Jerusalem down here in the south. And so they're up there in Cana. And they take off to the north and the west, north of the Sea of Galilee there, into Capernaum. And they hang out there for a few days. We don't know what was going on there. Matthew and Luke maybe will tell us what happened there, that he was doing a bunch of miracles and that type of thing. But then we want to see what, what happens next. So the Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, we all go away. It's like he's going south, so that would be down, right? You, know, you always go up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is considered a holy place, right? And so you always go up to Jerusalem. And there are massive amounts of people in Jerusalem. Why? Because the Passover is happening. And the Passover, what that is, it's a yearly celebration that God instigated. And he said, hey, you need to make sure that you celebrate the the deliverance of Israel from slavery in Egypt, which happened a thousand years or so before this or more. And so, actually more than that. So he said, I want you to celebrate the fact that I delivered you from Egypt, from slavery in Egypt. And what had happened was, is that they were to, to kill a lamb, a spotless lamb, and that blood was supposed to go on the doorpost of their house. And when God brought the death of the oldest son to Egypt, he would pass over Israel's homes, and they would not have death in their home. 
and Israel, or Egypt then would experience the death of the oldest child as well as the oldest animal, and it was a bloodbath. And that's what finally got things rolling for Pharaoh to say, okay, you can finally leave. The way this keys in with Jesus is because John the Baptist, as I said earlier, was going around saying when he saw Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the earth. And what John was doing, he was connecting this Passover lamb to being to Jesus, that Jesus was the ultimate Passover lamb. He was the one whose blood would be spilt for us. And it wasn't just for Israel, but it was for the whole world. And that we would have our sins forgiven. We'd be released from slavery to our sin. Not just the power that's in our lives now, but the consequences, the eternal consequences of hell. And so Jesus was that person. All right, so let's continue reading. And he, Jesus, found in the temple. Now, this is important. They, he uses, John uses here, a, uh, a general term for the temple building, like the entire temple mound, okay? As it'll play into it later on. Um, so he found, the, found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers instead of, uh, or seated at their tables. It'd be like if we put a bunch of animals out in our lobby, all right, and, and people were out there exchanging cash. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple, again, using that general term, with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume you. That's all the way back in, in Psalms. So hundreds of years earlier, there was a psalm written, and in a line in the middle of a psalm, this was said. And they're like, oh, hey, you remember Psalm 69? Yeah, it was talking about Jesus as they remembered back on it. And so, why is Jesus so angry? Why is He going in there and pushing everybody out of the temple, turning tables over, throwing their cash all over the place? Well, prior to Jesus coming, dying on the cross, and rising again, the temple was supposed to be a place where all the world really could come and worship God. It was meant primarily, first and foremost, for the Jews. For them to come worship God. God's presence was in the temple. In fact, I, I have a, uh, a picture here that might help us with that a little bit. You got that for me, Caleb? There you go. So this is the temple mound. And, and you have the inner court, which is that right before that big, taller building. And that's where the Jewish people could go, those who were right before God. They could go in there, and that's where they did their religious stuff. Okay? The Holy of Holies, the bigger, little, bigger building there, that was a place that only the high priest could go once a year. He would go in there and he would do sacrifices uh, for himself and for the nation of Israel. And that's where the presence of God was. All right? And then you had this outer court, the court of the Gentiles. And so the Gentiles were supposed to be able to come and worship God. They were supposed to be able to come. They also called it the, the, the uh, court of prayer. And so people would come in there, non-Jewish people would come in there, and they would worship God. They, were, they would pray. Now there was a distance between them and the God of Israel, which Jesus Christ, I won't get into all of it, but Jesus Christ then tears that down, that there is no longer this divide. 
But the outer court, again, was supposed to be for the Gentiles. You and I, if we lived back then, we could have gone into the temple and we could have prayed to God and spent time with God. And so the religious leaders turned the temple into a money-making operation. Originally, all this selling, buying and selling was done outside the temple. And then people would come in and they would have their animal sacrifice and, and that kind of stuff. But they would, they would purchase their animal outside the temple. They would exchange their money. This was meant as a service to people who were coming literally from all over the world. Jews who were coming back to Israel to, to celebrate um, this Passover celebration. And so they would come and they didn't have the right kind of money because the temple said you only had this certain kind of money. So they had to take their Roman money and they had to get it exchanged, of course, at an interest for those who were doing the exchange. And then they would come and they didn't want to take their animals for such a far, long journey because they had to be a perfect lamb. And they had unblemished animals. And so this would possibly blemish them. if they. So they would go and they would buy them from people. But we find out that those animals were not necessarily acceptable to God. In fact, Jesus called this a robber's den in Matthew 21. He, know that, he knew that this was not something that God wanted. They eventually brought all that into the court of the Gentiles. They pushed the Gentiles out. It was like uh, you know, um, a feed yard in there. And you just imagine the stench. You can imagine the noise. And they're exchanging cash. And so the worship of God had become this business built on corruption. And it was all orchestrated by a high priest and his family. So Jesus steps in and he cleans house. He cleans his father's house. He moves everybody out, pushes them all back out into the street, clears it. Money is tossed. People are tossed. Animals. So you can just you can see this crowd outside of the temple. You can you can get the idea that they're not happy, right? I mean, this is not people going, okay, he's telling us to move, we'll move. No, they're like, what are you, hey, what are you? They're upset. But he cleans out the temple. He gets people out. He calls it my father's house. The Jewish people were so fearful of God that they wouldn't even pronounce his name. And here's a Jewish guy who is saying, this is my father's house. This was sending... I don't know what you want to call it... I don't even know if we can today understand how upset and angry these Jewish people in the temple were at this point. The the Jews, uh, the say the the disciples, they saw this as a fulfillment as they looked back on it. So the disciples are always they're involved, and then later when Jesus is gone, they they look back on these things and they, oh yeah, this is what. Psalm 69.9 talks about. So this didn't sit well with the religious leaders. There's what happens next. The Jews, now John uses this term a lot, the Jews. Uh, and basically what he's saying, there's, there's a, the people who live in the city of Jerusalem, they kind of think of themselves as very, very special. They're more special than any other Jew. Especially, of course, the religious leaders. So he kind of lumps them all together and he says, the Jews, because they think you know, that they're pretty special. Anyways, so the Jews then said to him, what sign or what's this proof that you're God? 
do you, uh, that you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. Now, here he changes the, t- the word for temple. And he brings it from the temple mount into the, the, the inner temple that we, sh- we saw there, with the inner court in the holy of holy. And he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, now again, this, the Jews are angry at this point. They're not going, hey, let's just have a nice debate. <laughs> no, they're angry. They're yelling at him. It took 46 years to build this temple, this, this inner temple, this holy of holies. And will you raise it up in three days? Then John tells us what Jesus meant. He says, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. In other words, Jesus was saying, destroy this temple. Jesus is equating himself with the Holy of Holies. He's saying, I am the presence of God. And you destroy this, speaking of this body, destroy this temple. Go ahead to the next one. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this. And they believed the scripture, the Old Testament prophecies that said this was going to happen, and the word which Jesus spoke, what he just said at that point. They remembered back to it. Now, we're not really sure how much the Jews knew of who Jesus was. We don't know how much of what was happening up in northern Israel had gotten down to Jews. We probably figured some had because of how they phrased this. They said, hey, what's your sign? What's your, what's your proof? I don't know about you, but every time I hear it, well, here's your sign. But I, I didn't want to get into that this morning. And so he says, hey, let me, let me tell you what the proof is. The proof is when you... Destroy. If you were to destroy this temple, and then John's saying he's talking about himself, so we don't know if he's pointing to himself or what, but if you destroy this temple, in three days, I will raise it up. Jesus is saying, you kill me, I will raise myself up. Only God could do that, right? And not only that, but this is going to happen in three years. So what Jesus is saying to them is, you want a sign? You can have a sign, but it's going to be in three years. Then, of course, they don't know that, but he's predicting that in three years, this is what's going to happen. He's going to be crucified. He's going to die for three days, and he's going to raise again. We know from Scripture that God was involved in that. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were all involved in that. And then after the resurrection, the disciples like, oh, yeah, remember? Three years ago, he said he was going to do this. You know, again, hopefully we would be a little more quick to catch on to that. Now, we need to stop real quickly for a moment. Understand what Jesus is doing. He hasn't been to Jerusalem before. This is his first time down in Jerusalem. And what does he do? He goes to the heart of the religious leaders. He goes to the temple, this corrupted religion he originally gave to Israel for them to worship him. But man, as they always do, corrupts what God has. And so he goes, this is a shot across the bow. This is him saying, hey, listen, you think you're the religious leaders of Israel. I'm the religious leader of Israel. I'm the God of Israel. Warren Wiersbe, he's an author and pastor, he says, Jesus came and declared war on the hypocritical religious leaders. This put Jesus on their radar. This was their number one criminal. This was the guy they were going to go after, which they do for the next three years. So Jesus remains in Jerusalem that week, and here's how it finishes out. 
Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed. And that word there, pistuo, it, it means to be, have faith or trust. It's, it's the word believe that we use all the time when we talk about salvation and that kind of stuff. Many believed in his name, observing his signs, the proof that he's God, which he was doing. Now this is good, right? We all go, woohoo, yes, the people are believing. But then it says this, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting, he uses the same, John uses the same word, pastuo, faith, belief, was not believing or entrusting himself to them. For he knew all men or all people. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, why? Because he's God. For he himself knew what was in man. In other words, he knew that they, though they were kind of having signs and outward signs of believing in him and trusting in him, believing that he was God, that he knew that they didn't actually believe. He knew what was in their hearts. Jesus knows the heart of people. Here in our room this morning, those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, those of us who profess to have placed our faith in Christ, those of us who have not ever done that, Jesus knows exactly who we are and where we're at with Him. We can't hide that from Him. And so before we take, look at the takeaways, I just want to talk quickly about why John maybe included these events. The first one is this. He wants us to know that Jesus believed He was God. You might go like, well, yeah. If Jesus was lying to people, liars don't typically die for what they're saying they believe in, right? It's a lie. But Jesus truly believed it. He, he operated as if he was God. He was doing things that only God could do, but even if he didn't believe that, he was believing he was God. And there's an author, couldn't think of his name off the top of my head, didn't want to go research it, but is Jesus a lunatic, a liar, or the Lord? You know, that's, that's the challenge that we have. But Jesus believed he was God. He continually talked about his hour, this, this time where he was going to spend hanging on a cross, suffering for our sins. He predicted it three years before it ever happened. And then it happened. And he rose from the dead. And, and, and nobody debates that. Secular historians, biblical historians, no one debates that Jesus existed, that Jesus was killed by the Romans on a cross. And they may debate whether he rose from the dead or not, but no one's been able to find his body. Everybody searches. They know where Confucius died. They know where Buddha died. They know where Muhammad died. We can't find Jesus. You'd think that they would have found that by now with their ability to do it, but they can't find his body. Secondly, his disciples truly believed he was God. Now again, they initially believed in, in Bethany, and they even said it. They confessed it with their mouths, if you want to put it that way. And they gave up their lives. So this is kind of a key element here, especially if we go to the third observation. And, and the more they were with him, the more sure they were. Evidently, that's supposed to be surer, but that doesn't make sense to me. The computer said it's supposed to be surer, not more sure. It's more sure. So, But the more they were with him, the more they knew that he was, in fact, God. And then it tells us that they used the Bible to confirm it. They went back to Scripture, and Scripture confirmed who Jesus was for them. And in contrast, those who were in Jerusalem, they said they believed. 
But Jesus knew the truth. See, all belief is not saving belief. And that's got to settle on our hearts. That, that's got to permeate into our being. You can believe that Jesus is God. You can believe that Jesus even performed miracles, that he even had the power of God. But there's something else that needs to happen in a person's life. See, saving belief will change you. Saving belief turns you from being a person who does life your way to doing life God's way. That's what the disciples showed us. Not everybody became the 12 disciples, but everybody who put their faith in Jesus, who believed that Jesus was God, that he was the one who removes sin, that he's the one who makes us children of God, as John 1.12 tells us, when that happens, they truly believe that their life becomes his. They live life his way for his purposes, just like Jesus lived his life for God's purposes. Well, as a band comes up, what are some takeaways for us this morning? Well, the first one is this. If you're a non-believer, have you researched Jesus' death and resurrection? I mean, truly researched it. I, mean, I don't mean go to Google and find somebody who's got a, some sort of irritation with Christianity. I mean, go to the scholars and historians who are truly seeking this out and study it. Josephus, who was a historian way back when, Jewish, who was against Christ, wrote for Rome, is a good start. Your eternity depends on it. So research it. Do the work. And secondly, if you're a believer, what would Jesus say about your belief? Would he look at your heart and say, no, that's, that's true. That's a true believer. I can tell they are truly following me. If you're here this morning, you're like, man, I, I'm not really sure. Well, then do what the disciples did. Get with Jesus and make sure. Get into his word. Be reading in John. And make sure that your faith is truly saving faith. That you can stand there and say, yes, this is saving faith. And then let him change the way you live your life. Let's go ahead and stand. We'll close with this song. Thank you.